Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Monday, September the 6th, and we study and pray the inspired and true word of God and put on our Christ goggles with Psalm 144. Psalm 144 is commonly known as a royal psalm where David is celebrating how the Lord had provided for him. This psalm keeps us humble because he mentions how mankind, humankind, is like a breath, but yet his great, by his grace we are in his favor. I love our time because right now we're between the study of Hebrews and next week going to Leviticus. I'm so excited to get to Leviticus. We were so blessed with our study in Hebrews, going back and seeing Christ. And the same thing happens in the Psalms. We take a step back and we make sure we are focused in prayer to know that our Lord is our rock and our fortress as we pray today for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thy Strong Word is graciously underwritten by our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation. For more information of their great work around the world, visit lhfmissions.org, lhfmissions.org. To help us to be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we welcome back Pastor Stuart Crown of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Pastor Crown, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Well, the Lord be with you. It's a pleasure to be sharing God's Word with the saints around the world this day. Wonderful. Pastor, this is our first time together, and, and I know you've been on Thy Strong Word before. And, and can, you, can you spend a few moments introducing yourself, your family, and the work of the saints at Trinity? Yes. Um, I have been serving Trinity Lutheran since 1995-1996. Uh, my predecessor was Martin Taddy, under whom I did my vicarage in 87-88. I was ordained in 1990 and began serving the saints in Marshfield, Wisconsin, at Christ Lutheran, which is on the west side. I have uh, a wife, Sue, who was trained at Concordia River Forest as a teacher. Her first call was to southern Illinois in a dual parish, and she taught in a two-room school, uh, K through, I think it was fourth grade at the time. And uh, my wife and I have three children. Our oldest, Tim, uh, just made us a grandparent for the second time. Mm. Our daughter, Mason Rose, a couple of weeks ago. Our daughter, our second child, is Hannah, and she lives in Norfolk, Virginia. She is sort of a tour manager, contract operator for the Virginia, Virginia Opera Company. And her youngest, Luke, has just reentered his uh, Concordia Irvine for his fourth year, and his desire is to become a Lutheran high school teacher focusing on history, and his area, I think he, he says, would be uh, the time from the 5th century up to Charlemagne. That is his wow. preferred church history, but American history is probably the 20th century. Besides the regular, which you might say congregational Duties uh, Trinity is also the contact congregation for Lutherans at Stanford or other local colleges as well. So it's, it's been a challenge because of COVID, as it has been other places, uh, the challenges of meeting people face-to-face. But, you know, as Paul was in prison and gave thanks to God for his circumstances enduring the ministry, and his imprisonment was part of his ministry, 
Well, I think we can see COVID and the fires in this area as part of our ministry. How do we bear some of the afflictions of Christ, and how do we show forth in his grace and his perseverance through our works, which he has prepared for us for us to walk in? And that's, so that's a, gr- a brief introduction. Thank you for oh, that, yeah. Pastor. It's, it's one of those joys for me being from Minnesota is I would have no idea where Palo Alto is until I looked it up. And to see that you're near San Jose, right next to Stanford, like you said, campus ministry there. And then with the fires, it's a this is really a call for us as a church, not only to pray for Trinity Lutheran, um, or where you serve, but also to pray for those who are being affected by the fires, those who are in college. Because as we learn today, the Lord is our rock and fortress, and the temptations are great. And so we continue to pray for our young people, for your church and for the people affected by the fires. Um, Pastor, as we're here to, to study God's word, Psalm 144, because our rock is our, our Lord is our rock and fortress, can you begin our time in prayer and ask for his blessings? Yes. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Gracious Father, you have given us the guarantee of our eternal inheritance the gift of your Holy Spirit, and we pray for that gift the most, that our hearts and minds may be illuminated by his understanding, by his wisdom, so that as our ears are opened, our hearts are ready to receive the precious gift of your Son, Christ Jesus. Be pleased, then, Father, to guide us in the understanding of your word, that our faith may continue to blossom, and that our service toward each other may continue to grow. Show mercy to those who are in danger because of the forest fires and recuperating from the devastating floods throughout the eastern part of our country. Give strength to the relief workers, provide additional resources, and give your people opportunity both to speak and to enact the hope that they have within, the gifts of salvation and the temporal gifts you have so graciously bestowed upon us. Hear us, Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. As we look at their text today, I want to start this way because it is important for us to take a step back and pray for pastors. That can be difficult for for everybody, um, not not just pastors. It's very difficult. So I really do see this opportunity as we go through the Psalms this week is to use the Psalms, to utilize the Psalms for prayer. As we know, we're in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit guides us, and he gives us the words of what to pray. So, Pastor, let's begin Um, I will be reading and, more importantly, praying Psalm 144, and which will end with a Gloria Patri. So let us hear Psalm 144, a psalm of David, and we pray. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hand for war and fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge who subdues peoples under me. O Lord Yahweh, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is at the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you. 
who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people for to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is Yahweh. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Pastor, Psalm 144 is, is rich and full of, of grace and, and uh, victory and uh, pointing us to Christ. Uh, how would you, what, what are your first thoughts as we study this wonderful psalm to start us off on the right foot? Well, there are a couple of points that I would like the saints to remember. Uh, first of all, I think that David is speaking out of Christ's office. And what I mean, I think I shouldn't be inserting doubt into that word think. There's certainty here because as Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 teaches that the, the Psalms are essentially Christological exposition, that they speak forth his office and what he does, and in particular the royal office of David. So when David is speaking here, he's speaking on, through the Holy Spirit as a prophet and looking ahead to Christ's reign. So there can be no royalty apart from Christ's eternal reign. So David is speaking out of that. And from that perspective, you would have a, a much bigger uh, hope than simply Israel enjoying some physical prosperity. I think we have to take what is called an end-time perspective, the new creation perspective, that because God has trained his son for war, given him a body for sacrifice, and his, his son fulfilled the Father's will, there is this grand hope. If the people wanted a revelation of God's strength, they have seen it in Christ Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension, and sitting on the Father's right hand. And so the hope which is expressed in the last few verses becomes a new creation hope. Not simply a temporal hope for a wallet, prosperity, or a garage full of something, but rather for the prosperity of creation as God first articulated it in Genesis chapter 1. So we're looking beyond the boundaries of Israel up to Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, with Christ's ultimate victory. Now, when we confess that, there is the end of the Psalm, verse 15, sort of like a bookend, that when you confess this, you are content in every circumstance. It's a bit like what Paul articulates in Philippians 3 and 4, that whatever circumstance he might be in, he may be content because God gives him the strength. So we can be content in our circumstances because these things are true in Christ Jesus. So while we praise God, and that's a different word in verse 1 for the blessing of God, that is the praise of God for what he has done, we ourselves then find ourselves in a, a good circumstance, not merely of or not chiefly of physical well-being, but rather that we know that he will care for us as people in every circumstance. That's one, one bookend. The other bookend is that he moves us from the singular to the plural. 
David speaks very intently on, from his perspective, we hear that repetition of my, my, and my in verses 1 and 2. But then you get to the whole people of God in the last several verses. So while he speaks of his own kingship, a kingship can only exist if there are people ruled over. So the language moves us from, if you will, Christ's own victory to his people enjoying the fruits of Christ's victory. So moving from the singular to the plural. And so to see both of those movements, from praising God to his people being in a good situation of faith, and then from David's own confession to the people's confession, or Christ's victory to his people's victory, would be two things to keep in mind as we read the psalm. I want to ask this, because you've really laid out the foundation, like you said, the bookends of this psalm. As a pastor, when would you suggest somebody to pray this psalm um, uh, in their in their do- devotions or in their struggles or in their joys? When is a time that you think, uh, maybe I'm, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot here, but when would be a good time for someone to pray this psalm? Well, we have an upcoming uh, recall election in September, a couple of weeks. I think this psalm is always important to pray when uh, people look around and they can see social unrest or political chaos or controversy, whatever it might be. And there's a reminder, a very important reminder, that the satisfaction of God's people doesn't rest in kings and princes. They are raised up and they are brought down by God's desires. And very rarely do we know how God intends all of these things to work out. But in the psalm, which we would see fulfilled in like Peter's uh, Pentecost sermon, although he doesn't cite the psalm, we see fulfilled in Christ's victory. And so as there is political unrest and discontent, we find our, our hope, our, our fortress, as David says, in the work of God. And that doesn't change. That will always be steadfast, you know, the steadfast love that God has for us. So it would be in the midst of that kind of climate, you know, the social unrest, the political uncertainty that, certainty that people uh, always face in this world. And that's a reminder for you, our listeners, that Psalm 144 is, keep that in your back pocket as you as you look at the world, maybe watch the news, uh, like you said, for California, as they go through um, some recall elections. This is not a matter of trying to say, boy, I hope this person gets elected or that person, but once again, to have our hope in the Lord, our rock and our fortress. So, Pastor, I think I'm ready to go a few verses at a time. Are you ready? Yes, I am. All right. Let's go verses 1 and 2, Psalm 144. And reminder, I didn't say this before, but we will be reading from the English Standard Version of Holy Scripture, and we'll begin in the first two verses. Blessed be Yahweh my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge who subdues peoples under me. Now, I've seen a number of commentaries on these. One of them listed these two first verses as an emphasis that Yahweh, the Lord, is our trainer for war as we go to battle. Um, Pastor, what are your thoughts on those first two verses? Well, uh, David was the, the manifestation of, of God's rule, of, you might say, Adam reclaiming, 
what Satan thought was his, and so there's actual conflict. Evil isn't simply a, an ethereal manifestation. It does have real historical consequences. Uh, Philistines, Ammonites, Moabites, and David is the point man at this point in reclaiming that for, for God's people, for God's creation. So there is a, a real historical manifestation of David fighting. So we know that he fights against the Philistines and others. So he is talking out of his office. He's not speaking about you know, his personal pride. He recognizes that he was chosen by God. You know, Samuel anoints him, and therefore he has a particular office. So one might say he's following his table of duties. Well, if it doesn't mention kings, per se, in the table of duties in the small catechism, we do have other offices. And so David is simply, if you will, following the guide of his office. King, you lead your men out to war. You are the point man with the spear and with the bow. And you can't be any other place. So that that's verse 1. He thanks mm-hmm. God for being that certainty for his office. So when he leads his men, he doesn't have to wonder what his job is. He doesn't have to be uncertain about his task. He can go forth boldly and confidently that this is, in fact, uh, God's work for God's people. And then, you know, with, ver- with verse 2, it doesn't begin with he is, and we add that to make it a sentence, but the, the repetition that is found in verse 2 is that real confidence that the Spirit has given David. Uh, the I reminds me of the I of the Apostles' Creed. You know, I believe these things, but the personal confession, uh, a bit like, again, what Paul says in Philippians 4, that he is doing these things, that Paul can be confident, and that uh, God has given him this armor for battle, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. Uh, so there is that, I guess I can't get away from saying point man again, for <laughs> reclaiming what sin has seemingly conquered, and David is going to reclaim that as anticipating Christ's own victory, Christ's own work. And I like how you talked about the bookend. At the beginning, you said, blessed be the Lord, my rock, uh, my fingers, my step, you know, my stronghold, so forth. And sometimes we can see this, at least in Minnesota, we're like, well, that's kind of arrogant. It's only about him when he's saying this. Why is it important that we are able to pray that way as Christians about what the Lord is to me? Um, how would you unpack that for somebody when they read this? Oh, so if we speak of I, the, the confidence, of course, does not rest in our ability, in our fleshly success. Uh, our identity is wrapped up in the baptism into Christ Jesus, and because he is the victor over death, both by his resurrection and ascension. Therefore, I gain my confidence in my daily work. I think one of the passages I would go to is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, after this extensive extolling of Christ's resurrection, that our work in the Lord is not in vain. So whether your work is heralded as David's work was, or it's never seen, like the work of the spleen, (laughs) or other parts of the body, you can still take comfort that that work is not in vain. Mm. So there's a personal assurance that despite the the tribulations and trials, 
Uh, God still has his eye on you, and he still empowers you as individual to do the work that he has given you in the body. Facing inward toward the body, but also outward toward the rest of uh, society. And that's, that, is, that is really helpful because he's saying my, but he's proclaiming Christ in the midst of it. He's not, he's not proclaiming himself. And especially as you go to the next uh, two verses that we want, I'm going to be reading, anything else you want to highlight, Pastor, in verses 1 and 2? Um, no, not at this point. Maybe sometime I'll come back to it. Got it. Any time is, is more than okay as we look at this. So verses 3 oh, and... Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Maybe, maybe one thing in verse 2. He begins by, by saying steadfast love. And for anybody who would have heard this in the original language, they would have thought of God's covenant faithfulness throughout Israel's history. And so he, it's a bit like us beginning by saying, God loves me in Christ. And he has assured me by the blood of the new covenant. And that's how David begins this. He is assured because of God's covenant faithfulness. That's where he finds his hope in life. Ah, see, this this does point me to one of our, our, our Easter hymns, I Know My Redeemer Lives. And I was trying to think through my mind, where does that come from when he says all this my language is when he gets to... Um, uh, the fourth stanza, I believe it's the fourth stanza, he lives, all glory to his name, he lives, my Savior, still the same. And even though yeah. it says my, it definitely points us away from ourself. And it's a good thing, because verses 3 and 4 point us why it shouldn't be about us. So 3 and 4. O Yahweh, Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. So he, he goes from the rock to speak about humankind, mankind. And what does he say? I, I think that when, when David moves us from verse 2 to verse 3, although the language is, if you will, very generic, thinking of mankind, I, I do think that David wants us to be very specific. Why has God chosen this man, David? He was such a young boy when Samuel anointed him, when he faced off against Goliath. And indeed, in the, uh, in the Greek version of the psalm, it does attribute this to the circumstances to David facing Goliath. That why would God have chosen him? His life is but a vapor, it's but a breath, it's but a passing shadow. So how could God gain advantage by using me as as a deliverer for his people and then it's um, projected outward from there that why would god use israel Mm. or why would god use the church in such a manner who are we to be chosen and the issue is uh, thanks to god for his marvelous grace in christ and that's how i think we began by looking at verses three and four but you can't get away from its resemblance to Psalm 8 and then its use in Hebrews 2, that why would God use a crucified man, one who is buried, to rescue his people, from whom everybody turns away and says, how can this be salvation? How can, how can Yahweh look at that kind of result of ministry and be content? And then it's really the then the the resurrection by which the Father gives his 
okay, his supreme vindication to there's there's more than this than you can see. Likewise with David, who's pointing ahead to the Savior Christ. Yeah. In verse 4, it says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. That can, well, in American context, we say that's kind of depressing. Um, but why is that an important piece for us as Christian people, as human beings, to be reminded of in our lives? Well, uh, here is an ad for the Lutheran Witness. The <laughs> September issue, I think, isn't it the September issue, which is dealing with death? Right, absolutely. Uh, we, all, we all know that death is going to be the end of our mor- mortal life. And it is good to prepare for such things. Uh, you know, practically speaking, that we don't want to burden our relatives. But on the other hand, there's an opportunity to make a bold confession both now as we prepare and on the day of death to make the same confession and when others gather for the burial to have that same bold confession of the resurrection. Uh, From Psalm 90, we ask God to uh, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, how to live faithfully, how to live by his righteousness. Uh, So to meditate upon death is not to be morbid, rather for the Christian to look ahead to the glory of the resurrection, that while these are frail bodies, he promises to uh, give us an eternal dwelling. It's a reminder, too, we just finished the book of Hebrews on Friday, and it speaks about that the city of what we look forward to is not the city here on earth, but and it speaks very clearly about the heavenly Jerusalem, um, the heavenly dwelling, pointing us, and the reality is, if we think we're never going to die, then there's nothing to look forward to. Um, but when we realize what we really are, which is mortal people, we know that there's something better beyond us on account of Christ, as you've said so well, that this psalm points us to. And so, Pastor, as we look at that, we're going to have to take our break. We are studying and praying Psalm 144 with Pastor Stuart Crown, and we'll be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying and praying Psalm 144 with Pastor Stuart Crown from Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. And Pastor, we've gone through the first four verses, which to unpack that is is, is wonderful to realize that our Lord is our rock and we are always in need of a rock and fortress and the depth of his love, as you mentioned so well, the steadfast love and him being our fortress Pastor, anything else you want to highlight in those first four verses before we move on? I think that sets the foundation of how to understand then the following verses. He provides the foundation of of God's faithfulness, which he implicitly acknowledges, and that enables us to understand why then he petitions in the following verses 
and has the confidence to pray in the last several verses, 12 through 15. Let's continue on then, verses 5 through 8. Bow your heavens, O Lord Yahweh, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. So it, it tells us about the Lord coming down, and then it speaks a little bit of what would be a battle of sorts, of some enemy. How would you, what would you say in these verses? I think David knew his catechism well. He knew the stories of Scripture, his ancestors, how they were passed on to him. So maybe he has in mind the Sinai theophany when God in, in his power manifested himself to Israel. And maybe the crossing of the sea, you know, the, the power manifested there. And also maybe with the day, in the day of Joshua, the hailstones in Joshua chapter 10, the ability of Yahweh to use nature as his as his armory and the god of creation will fight for his people uh, david happens to be the, the weak tool the, the clay vessel at this point but it's always yahweh's strength and he says as you acted in the past i'm confident you will act in the future in the same way so i will call upon you now and you know, when we do the translation uh, David doesn't say, bow your heavens. He, first of all, addresses Yahweh. It's you know, like, oh, Father. That's the first word out of his mouth, like in the Lord's Prayer. You know, Our Father who art in heaven. Oh, Yahweh, bow down the heavens. And there's, some, I think, some real intensity that David wants us to, to hear with that sort of petition. And so he's asking the Lord to do some, like you said, you, you can't help but think of Mount Sinai. As he's speaking, um, touch the mountains, flash forth the lightning, send your arrows, stretch out your hand from on high and rescue me from the many waters and the foreigners and so forth. Um, un unpack that for us a little bit because it can get confusing. You feel like, is he in a, a flood? Is he in a war? Is What's happening? How would you unpack that for us as he speaks about many different attacks that are happening to him? Well, the, the language of uh, verse 5 is reminiscent of the Sinai Theophany. Uh, verse 6 uh, probably uh, takes over the, the Canaanite confession of what Baal was supposedly able to do. Mm. You know, Baal, the storm god, a fertility god. Baal has no power. Yahweh has the power to organize his creation to fight for Israel and to fight for David. Not Baal, but Yahweh. So he's depending upon... Yahweh to descend, to condescend to his people, to his servant David, with his mighty hand. You know, the hand is the way to express power, because that's where your power typically comes out of you, through your hands. And the many waters could have been, I suppose, physical, but probably more metaphorical. Uh, for an Israelite landlubber, you wouldn't go out to sea, uh, although mm -hmm. Solomon did have his uh, large uh, mercantile fleet that to see storms in the ocean was a bit like death, uh, like Jonah being tossed into the sea and then dying, as it were, in, in Jonah chapter 2. So he's speaking about a deliverer from what looks like certain death. 
saying God must reach out his hand. Uh, maybe people might think of our Lord reaching out to Peter as Peter is sinking in the waves to rescue him. And, you know, the waters then would look like the foreigners. The God's hand versus foreigners' hands. Man's hands versus the Creator's hands. Which will be stronger? And David says, I know. Yahweh's hands will rescue me from the hands of anybody. And their hands is all about lies and deceit. Their mouth speaks this way, and the right hand, rather than being a pledge of honesty and faithfulness, all they do is cheat, they break treaties, they cannot be trusted in, in any way. No, he's, so that, that's the movement. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate how you're saying that. One Something that sticks in my mind is the language that we hear all the time in the small catechism is he's asking the Lord to come down. Now, there's a little bit of theological um, how does this all fit language that is uh, it's important for us to be able to distinguish because they're like, okay, come on. God is always there. He's Emmanuel. Why would we ask the Lord to come down? He's already down. What kind of, why would we pray such a prayer um, in our lives today? Kind of like in our catechism, it says, you know, thy will be done. Obviously, God's will is done even without our prayers. How would you describe that to somebody when that prayer happens and someone says, well, Pastor, why would we need to pray that? Because he's already down here. Well, I think we'd anticipate what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, deliver us from evil. We're not speaking of simply spiritual evil. We're also speaking about the physical evils which attack a person, property, and possession. And not one of us wants to see evil or Satan destroy what is good. Uh, Satan wants to attack marriage and family and creation itself, ravaging the earth with forest fires and disease. And he's quite pleased that people are despairing. So when we ask God to come down, we want him to run the heavens, as Isaiah prays, and to rescue his people. We want the Lord to return more quickly, you know, Come, Lord Jesus, that's not too far away from come down and rescue us. You know, God does this in Genesis with the Tower of Babel. He comes down to see what man is doing. Mm-hmm. And he does this in Exodus. He comes down to see what's happening with his people. Now, he has visited us once and for all in Christ Jesus, and we're looking forward to the second appearance when he will bring salvation with us, as you studied in Hebrews chapter 9. So I think we're really praying that David's really looking ahead to that deliverance when he speaks out of his office here. So as we move forward in these verses, like you said, there's there's a wonderful communal bringing it all together in verses 12 through 15. But I wanted to go through 9 through through 11. So I want to make sure, do you have anything else you wanted to share with verses 5 through 8? Maybe just one emphasis that the language that we hear men use, or how men speak, uh, it's typically not truthful. Uh, but God's word, as the psalmist speaks about it, is refined seven times. That is, it's always pure. Now, Psalm 19 does a, is a wonderful exposition of the trustworthiness of God's word. And because it's pure, it cannot pass away. So when we are anxious about the circumstances, the promises of God are the place to find security, the place to find our refuge. We move forward, verses 9 through 11, as he um, sings a new song, verses 9 through 11. 
I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you. Who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, who speak mouth, whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. So, so Pastor, he, he once again confesses Christ, confesses what he will do, and tells us what the Lord will do as well. What is happening in verses 9 through 11? Well, having established that God is training him or has trained him for his office, and that David has confessed Yahweh as his refuge, and that God uses his power in creation to, to rescue his people, the obvious response, the only response, one might say, from faith is of praise of God. So this is a new song probably referring to this particular occasion, that God has rescued David, and David can only but sing about this new rescue. And I think we would think of Revelation at this instance, that the new song that the saints sing in the new creation because of the victory that Christ has gained for us. And notice how David speaks about he gives victory to kings and rescues David his servant. That God has said, this man is my servant, and therefore he will work for David's rescue. It may not be the way that people always think it will be rescue, but he will rescue David. Uh, verses In verse 11, we have an obvious repetition from verses 7 and 8. So th there must have been something pressing upon David, some immediate issue, to use a refrain, that there are people who are speaking lies about him. Maybe one could imagine that leaders of the Philistines are saying, David, this young shepherd presumes to be king over God's people? How could that be true? And maybe there's manipulation of, of people involved, that they are um, sowing seeds of discontent and lying about David or putting doubt among the Israelites about how David can fulfill his reign over the people of God. So in the midst of that, David will yet call upon Yahweh and praise him for the victory already assured. He repeats himself in verses 8 and 11, and I found this interesting. And he speaks, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. So he's definitely speaking of evil that is upon him. And I was reading a commentary that definitely spoke about the father of lies, the devil, and whose, you know, it, it does, you know, his strong hand is nothing but falsehood. And I thought this was important for us as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, but deliver us from evil, not only evil, but the evil one. And this is an important prayer for us, as you said, to pray during chaos, but also, I think, for our own temptations. Any thoughts on him repeating that and what David was doing as he wrote this? Sure. I, I think that, you know, sometimes maybe as, um, as Christians wanting to pray and wanting to show earnestness or conviction, that we think that we have to come up with new words or new prayers. And David here teaches us that the repetition is not off-putting to God, that the Holy Spirit has taught David to repeat himself, as it were, because that is what he needs. So it's not vain repetition that David is using here, but I'd say the confidence that he has to call upon God for this deliverance. 
So when we speak of, or when we would pray Psalm 144 in this instance, that we recognize that there are those who are deceitful. Uh, we may not know who they are immediately, but we pray that God would protect us from their lies. And as he said from uh, Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, we can render it, deliver us from the evil one, the father of lies. Uh, and that, of course, is our hope because uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is uh, brings up one thought I had is... Like you said, God is not disappointed in repetition, <laughs> and and it's a good it's good for us as well. In your own congregation, I want to take a step back. You mentioned that you will pray matins, which is a prayer office we have in our hymnal, a way of praying in the morning and bringing our praises to the Lord, and and it's good to have repetition for us, even though there's some changes uh, here and there in that prayer office. Why is that an important aspect for us as Christians in prayer, like the Lord's Prayer, and in other prayers like Matins, that we repeat the words that the Lord tells us, like in these Psalms? Well, you know, my heart, my thoughts are always uncertain. I know that God's Word is always certain because it's rooted in Christ's death and resurrection. As Jeremiah teaches us from Lamentation 3, God's mercies are new every day. And Having a, a framework of matins, and as, as you said, there are variations. The psalms and the readings uh, vary. We use different uh, prayers from LSB and TLH for the prayers. That that framework keeps us focused on the mercies of God. So as much as I might be in turmoil coming to matins and thinking about the, uh, the challenges I face within my own heart, the, the wrestling between the spirit and the flesh, the framework focuses me on the mercies of God. So the, the repetition always keeps before the congregation the cross of Christ. And you know, that's why we pray Matins regularly and use the same service, because, frankly, I need it as much as anybody. It's a good reminder to you, our listeners, that repetition is good, because the Scriptures are the Scriptures, and we repeat them, and second of all, that just because you knew it when you were a kid in catechism or you knew the service growing up, it hits you differently at different stages of life. I'll give you one example, Pastor, is that we were able to reinstitute matins a few years ago in our congregation. And we, we were doing it on Sunday mornings. Um, and one of our organists grew up with it. She was happy as a clam that we started doing it again. And I remember um, one older lady said, I grew up doing matins. And boy, it is just as refreshing as it was as a kid. Even though as a kid, I kind of zone my way through it. It hits you again as if I'm back at that age, but I, I give thanks even more. It's kind of, it was what she told me. And so I, it, 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 is, it is a great reminder, as you said, in your own congregation, that we can repeat these things because God's word is always at work. And he continues to uh, rescue and deliver us from the evil one through the word of God. Any last thoughts on those first 11 verses before we get to the, to the end of, of Psalm 144? I think I would say that uh, David has established the hope that he has for his office. And because the office of Christ is established among God's people, therefore they can look ahead with confidence and certainty. Well, we continue. So if you think about the... Keep going. 
Well, go ahead. Oh, you keep going. So if you think about a pyramid upside down, you know, Christ is the point of the pyramid, and everything on him rests. So all the prosperity of his people, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, etc., are all the, the base of the pyramid going upward. If Christ the King doesn't do his work, the whole pyramid will topple. So when David speaks about this confidence, it's confidence not only for himself, but for the, the reign of God among his people, that they can have their daily life and eat without fear and gather without uncertainty. So let's move forward as he moves us forward to what the Lord will do. Verses 12 till the end of Psalm 144. May our sins in their youth be like plants full grown. Our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the peoples whose God is Yahweh. Now, Pastor, my first thought on this is that this should be my prayer. I have four children. You said you have children. You have grandchildren. That we pray that our sons may be plants full grown, meaning that they mature, that our daughters will be like corner pillars, that they're a foundation, um, that, that our farmers have food and that they're providing, that our sheep are bearing more, our cattle bearing more, and that there be no cry or distress in our land, which I think is a great prayer for us to pray, knowing that our Lord is a Lord over all creation. What are your thoughts on, on this prayer for us now and for the future? So this is chiefly a prayer of, of God's people. Now, we do uh, pray for all manners of people, as Paul teaches us in First Timothy 2, that we should pray for our kings and our, our presidents, our mayors, our governors, our judges and magistrates, so that not only we, but our neighbors, praying is serving our neighbors, that they might have a life of peace, that they might receive God's gifts both in daily bread, but also the ability to hear God's word without fear, as some of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are presently experiencing. So when we pray this, uh, we are looking ahead, I think, not only to the daily bread, but to the renewal that we hear in Genesis 1, that God's word would have its proper place and bring forth an abundance like we've never seen in this life. It's the covenant blessings that Moses spoke, that Yahweh spoke to his people in Deuteronomy 28, that I am the Creator, and for those who trust me, their hands will be too small to receive all of my gifts. You just cannot imagine how abundant I can make creation. And whatever you receive in this life, be it too much manna on day six, I can give even more than that. I'll give you my son. And if you have my son, you have more than you need and I'll provide everything else along with them. So I think that's where this ends up going. It's bigger than we imagine. Right, right. Yeah, I like how you describe that. It's more than your hand will be able to be able to handle. And and this is what we pray for, for example, our children, like like you like I, I mentioned, um, our farmers, uh, the, the the fruits of their labor. Uh, the fruits of the land, to be able to see creation in that way. 
And it also points us, as you said at the beginning, to our, as a community, so it's not just my Savior, my God, this is may our sons. Why is that an important transition for us to remember, as David does, from my to our? Why is that important? Well, uh, we see we speak of the church as the present believers, but there's another generation coming up. And so we, we pray for the young ones who we are catechizing. Um, so maybe we could jump to Proverbs 2, where, where Solomon speaks about his sons, or my son listening to this instruction. And then in Proverbs 31, where the, 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 the daughters are to hear the instruction of this wonderful wife, this wonderful God-fearing woman. So this is, if we're going to pray, there will also be catechesis attached to that prayer. How do the sons grow? How do the daughters become like, uh, like beautiful pillars at a palace? Well, it is through intentional training. Uh, you, you shape them by God's Word. And uh, that is why we pray and we do our catechesis. And also, does it point us, where does it point us forward to? That we want that for this life, but does it point us to something, I guess, beyond this life? Well, I, I think the, the psalm always provides us that hope, uh, that hope of our eternal salvation. That one wants to see the fullness of instruction or the, the beauty of our, of our daughters in this present life. Our vision is always clouded. It's always obscured by our own uncertainty, our own desires. But then in the new creation, we'll see the beauty of what God has done. The work of faith that, that people have, uh, had, have had work in them. And you've probably heard this illustration, and many listeners probably likewise, that you know, life is a bit like a, a counted cross-stitch project. And we only see the back side of it with all the cross threads and not, etc. But then it's flipped over at the last day, and you see the beauty of God's work, and the backside is forgotten. So we're looking at that God, that our God building towards that revelation of what He has done, the fullness which we'll see at the last day. That is, you know what? I've never heard that analogy. That is absolutely no. perfect because <laughs> I grew up with people doing cross stitching, doing that all the time, and I. I've always been kind of fascinated by what you see in the back. And then it's just a perfect understanding that we see it, and it actually is quite um, amazing to look at in the back. But then, like you said, you flip it over, and you're no longer amazed by the backside, but you're amazed because of the fullness of how everything's pulled together. That is absolutely wonderful. I'm going to use that in a sermon. It's going to be great. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. So thank you for that, Pastor. As we look at, uh, we have about five minutes, a little bit less than five minutes left. I want to make sure, verses 12 through 15, do you have anything else to highlight? Um, Thinking about the beauty of the church in in verse 12, um, we probably don't often I don't want to end up celebrating physical beauty at the expense of the, the beauty that is of the Spirit. Mm. But there is this perfection that we're looking ahead to that David sees here. It's a bit like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve must have been the most beautiful people until the new creation. And there's that sense here, our daughters like corner pillars. Destruction of a palace, you know, how beautifully formed by the skilled mason. 
and how beautifully we've been formed as God's people, both in both body and spirit. And then that extends also to the rest of creation, that the, the, the fields bring forth this abundance, and even all of our herds, and that there'll be no, uh, no tears, no distress, thinking of the, the great city in Revelation 21, no cry of distress in our streets, no evil will be there. The gates will be open all night because there is no night and there'll be nothing to fear. As you look at this whole psalm, how would you encourage somebody with these words? So um, somebody maybe prays this psalm or you, like you said, you point someone to this psalm if they're in chaos or social unrest. But also, uh, I think this is a, the part you pointed to at the end here is the beauty of humanity, of our sons or daughters, the, the beauty of creation. Um, how, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think through how we can slowly go through this psalm and why it's important for us, as any psalms are, why is it important for us to pray this psalm? That's what I'm going to ask. Why is it important? Our afflictions of this day are temporary. They may seem very weighty, but they are flying away. And we cannot compare these afflictions to our eternal weight of glory that God has prepared for us. So we always have this long-range view. I, I think our Lord, of course, always has us out of Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew 5 sounds a bit like Psalm 144, verse 15. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit or the peacemakers, or those who mourn. It isn't saying that they are blessed in an earthly sense, but they are content in those circumstances because they know they partake of the kingdom of God now. You are in Christ Jesus now. There's no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. And that's really, I think, the capstone of why we would pray this. Whatever the circumstances, man is but a breath. God's hand has reached down in Christ. Jesus pulled us out of the mire, set us on the rock, which is Christ, and therefore we are competent to pray to him, our Father, and know that there is a happy issue, even now, for these circumstances. Pastor Stuart Crown of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California, helping us to pray God's strong word from Psalm 144. Pastor Crown, thank you for being our guest and bringing the gifts. Uh, the Lord's peace be with you and all the saints in Christ. Saints of our Lord, as Pastor told us, keep praying. Although we are but a breath, our Lord strengthens us. Our Lord is our helper. He gives us victory over our enemies, especially the evil one, and provides from generation to generation and shows us the beauty of his creation now and forever. Pray this psalm when you are either seeing blessings or you need to see your blessings. Because in Christ, you are truly blessed. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.